This is News Talk on the VOCM Bigland FM radio network. The views and opinions on this program are not necessarily those of this station. And now your News Talk host, Linda Swain. Well, good Friday afternoon, everyone. Um, Brian Callahan taking a load off of Linda today, who so ably and professionally filled in for Patty this morning on Open Line. Piece of cake. Smooth as butter. Um, But this is News Talk, and as the title says, we talk news. Uh, Not necessarily what's happening today. It doesn't have to be what happened today, but any day, really. And as per usual, uh, there's plenty of it on the go. I'll get to a few headlines in a moment. Um, But I would be remiss, and I know I'm a little late on this, but it's my first chance to rant what can be said that hasn't already been said about the Toronto Blue Jays. Yikes. I'll call this my cooling off period, uh, at least until we hear from the team brass. That's supposed to be next week, uh, apparently, to discuss with reporters exactly what happened, why it happened, and how to prevent a repeat collapse next year. And if that sounds like a familiar refrain, it's good reason for that. It's the same shock and disappointment uh, that Jays fans went through last year. Two games, two and done. A uh, grand total of one run this year over two games for a team that was loaded with hitters, good hitters, but... Uh, just didn't come together. They couldn't bring it both together. They got the pitching, and then lo and behold, we took out the best pitcher. Um, but <laughs> if you watched it all, at this point, I think most fans just want an explanation, really, just why certain moves, such as yanking Jose Barrios while he was dealing the best bit of pitching the Jays had in a week, um, and probably all season from Barrios. He was on, but yet they still took him out for uh, you say Kukuchi. But anyway, I'm getting into the weeds on this. Um, Who ultimately made those calls? That's what everybody wants to know. Was it the manager, the manager and others? Did it come from the executives up in the suites? Who knows? But it's a big deal for a lot of people. You know, the Jays are our only uh, game in town across Canada now. And uh, there's lots of great baseball fans and people who really got on that bandwagon. Um, just while they were celebrating. <laughs> That's another th- I just don't get it. You lose a game, you celebrate, you're playing the playoffs in two, two days, and you have a big champagne celebration. I can't say that did anything for their psyche either. Anyway, as they say, we need to know what went wrong so it can be fixed, uh, period. Uh, back to news headlines, though. So, um, you know, in, in actual news today, now that I got that off my chest, um, several things, of course. Uh, the, the, uh, Her Majesty's Penitentiary is not going away anytime soon. I have had the occasion a couple of times in the last week to question the Justice Minister, John Hogan, on it. Um, and there seems to be a frustration on their end of being asked questions. But to be perfectly honest, um, it's not going to get better anytime soon. We all know Her Majesty's Penitentiary uh, it's not going to improve the conditions. There may be some um, temporary Band-Aid and, and other solutions I can find, but all I can think of is uh, there's at least another four to five years go before, before a new penitentiary is built, and that's on the, on the optimistic side, three, four, five years maybe. Um, and in the interim, what do we do? And so I've been asking that question for a couple of weeks, and today uh, critic... PC opposition justice critic Helen Conway Ottenheimer also um, uh, was wondering the same things. Um, What can be done in the short time? I mean, obviously, we can't build it overnight, so uh, other kinds of accommodations have to be found here. Uh, I can't help but think it gets that bad down at the pen that maybe the pen becomes a deterrent to crime, to criminals at some point. Who wants to go there? Who wants to be in there? Uh, maybe it'll work that way. I don't know. Maybe that could end up helping. I, I just don't know. It's it's not fit, though. 
Um, you know, people talk about third world. They're not going to talk about that. But the bottom line is it is not fit. We know from mold to rodents to dead birds to... And that's just what we hear of assaults on prisoners, of course, on, uh, on officers and vice versa and prisoners on prisoners. It just becomes a, um, a real tinder. Uh, what do you want to call it? It's just a, it, it could explode. And it's just not a good situation. Um, staffing issues, shortages. Uh, it's ugh. so, uh, you know, I won't belabor that. I'll let um, Helen Conway Ottenheimer get into that uh, in, a sh- in just a few minutes. Uh, actually, after the we'll go to that in the second half hour. Actually, she met with reporters at the uh, outside the House of Assembly earlier today. Of course, uh, the FFAW is sending signals that uh, there could be some movement on their request for changes to the EI rules, given what the crab fishery went through uh, this past uh, season. The delays that caused a lot of losses, a lot of hold up, a lot of uh, profit for a lot of people was went by the wayside. A lot of crab dumped. Um, anyway, so they're hoping that uh, in some way, shape, or form, you know, they're talking about the seasonal fisheries are affected by the sudden change, really, just recently in qualification criteria. So, uh, you know, it's um, uh, we're hearing rumblings that there could be something from the feds to uh, to offset some of that uh, angst that the crab, anyone in the crab fishery uh, has been going through, trying to get their weeks and uh, through no fault of their own can't get them. And let's see. And, of course, we'll, uh, we'll end off this afternoon with an appropriate uh, piece. We had um, the RNC and the RCMP came together also this afternoon. Just, you know, I mean, people, no one's out to insult anyone's intelligence. But really, when the message isn't getting through on dangerous driving, on uh, high driving, drunk driving, just uh, speeding, um, not really given a crap about other vehicles on the road and every man, woman, child for themselves. It's not a good recipe. And on the long Thanksgiving weekend ahead, we can never use enough reminders from the police about, uh, you know, just to remind you, if you're not going to do it for yourself and you don't care what happens to yourself behind the wheel, how about the other people coming the other way or crossing the road or walking out of a driveway or you name it? If you're not paying attention, it's not good for anyone. So, um, you know, we'll hear we'll hear those comments from the police. Hopefully some of it uh, eventually will get through. But look at that. Claudette, let's, why don't we take a break? We'll come right back. And um, I was at a news conference with NL Hydro today, and we all have heard the problems with the Labrador Island link over the past few years, you know, trying to get to the finish line to commission the Muskrat Falls project, which was done in the spring. And today, Hydro gave an update on um, the LIL, the Labrador Island link, and what the future holds. And we'll get to that right after the break. I'm Brian Callahan on News Talk. We'll be right back. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. Welcome back to the program. So Newfoundland and Labrador Hydro provided an update on the status of the Labrador Island link today. And without further ado, myself and a few other reporters were on hand today to hear um, from CEO Jennifer Williams. 
So we wanted to uh, discuss with customers today uh, the results of the investigations uh, from last winter um, for the Labrador Island Link. And I do want to note that the Labrador Island Link um, following commissioning in April has been running very reliably, and we're very pleased with that. And the results of the investigations um, today uh, show that what we have found is normal for very early in operation of uh, an asset of this size. And we have uh, taken some actions already to um, do some uh, mitigation measures that would uh, de-risk anything going into next winter. So we're very confident in the reliability of the lil coming up this winter. So you told us about a four-year program to replace some equipment and add other pieces of equipment. Tell us in very simple terms so the audience can understand what it is you're going to be doing over the next four years. Sure. So we do have a, a four-year approach to address um, some of the issues that we found last winter. And there's a piece of equipment called a turnbuckle um, that we are replacing with a more robust uh, piece of equipment. And we're going to do that over four years. And in year one, which we've got um, good work done so far this year. We've got about a quarter of the work done as planned in the most difficult to reach locations. So uh, that's really important to know that um, the hardest spots to get to are the places that we prioritized. There's a, there was supposed to be, or there were, when, when you announced the almost commissioning or a basic commissioning of the project back in the spring, um, we were told that there would be a 900 megawatt test uh, sometime in the fall. Um, we learned that that plan may have changed. Can you explain why and, 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 and what we could expect? Sure. The commissioning test that we completed, um, or the final test that we completed in April that led to the commissioning of the Labrador Island Link, um, tested all the functionality necessary to test up to 900 in the future. What's remaining to be done with that next version of software um, is uh, a few cleanup items that we want to do for the long-term um, operation of the software. And we're uh, finishing up and and using the, the existing software that we have, and then um, we are addressing all these other items that we mentioned, you know, making sure that the structural capacity of the Labrador Island Link is in good shape, all of our other assets are in good shape headed into winter. So we've chosen to move the test um, for the 900 megawatt test from early winter of 2023 to late winter of 2024. And uh, so even, even the proceeding of that test is very dependent on a whole host of conditions. Is it cold enough? We need very cold day. Um, can our neighbors in, in, in various jurisdictions, um, you know, in Atlantic Canada and beyond, can they handle the timing of the test that we would have? So we want to do this 900 megawatt test. We will do this 900 megawatt test, but um, it's important to know that um, the t exact timing of it does often have some flexibility as it does uh, this year. After all these years of uh, designing and building the Labrador Island Link, we're hearing today that you're having to replace more equipment, install more equipment. Mm -hmm. What should the ratepayer take from this fact that you're going to have to spend another $28 million over the next four years to do more improvements to the Labrador Island Link? Mm -hmm. the, um, the items that we have found um, as a result of last winter is not unexpected. It is normal that when you put a big asset in service, you're always going to find some things that you need to address. Um, the items that we have found for this uh, past, from this past winter are items that can cannot be predicted or designed into um, the original design. So what we're doing now is in the early days of operation, real life application. We have uh, researched and found what we need to do and have gone ahead and now made the decisions on what we should deal with and uh, as opposed to dealing with absolutely everything. You could have designed a line that was way too robust in many locations and that would not have been a prudent expenditure. So what we're doing is what all utilities would do is early in service. When you find issues you need to address, uh, you address them in the early operation and that will lead to long-term reliable operation. A lot of these issues that have been identified, the turnbuckles and other issues with 
words are galloping, that sort of thing. Um, some uh, might say it's all in the harshest of conditions, the harshest areas, the most remote areas of the province. Some might wonder, did you underestimate that challenge? I don't think we underestimated the challenge. This line um, is designed for those very harsh conditions. What we are seeing now is real-life um, application of certain climactic conditions that are affecting um, specific areas, and we are taking um, action and, and making changes in those narrow specific areas. And um, to predict the exact um, climactic conditions for every kilometer of line uh, wouldn't be possible in the original design, so we certainly did not underestimate um, the original design, and we are now refining in specific narrow focus locations what we need to do to make the line even more robust. Why not make sure that the LIL can run at 900 megawatts? Oh. Uh, you know, just for the person who don't really understand how this works, sure. well, why not make sure we can run it at, you know, peak, peak mm -hmm. capacity? Why need to build a 150 megawatt combustion turbine, for example? Sure. Um, the, the combustion turbine that does get discussed appropriately, um, and that's why we want to talk with um, as many people as possible, but what, what are we doing to plan for the future? And um, a combustion turbine is not the same as a un an eighth unit, for example, in beta spare rate with regards to um, being able to serve people for the decades to come. So what we are doing is uh, doing a whole host of studies and uh, uh, submitting those to the Public Utilities Board and, and wanting to talk to people about that. Um, we also filed a study last week on battery storage. So we are examining, I don't know, a dozen, 15 different options of how we're going to supply customers into the future. And um, next, sometime next year, hopefully we'll have all of the information available, that we've done all the research on the options available, and we will, at that time, recommend what is the right solution for what the needs are of the province. Um, we will need supply over and above the LIL even at 900 megawatts. Um, every utility in the country, and I would suggest in many jurisdictions around the world, are um, planning for and, and readying themselves for the impacts of um, policy resulting from climate change. And to transition from a uh, fossil fuel-based um, economy and in some instances electricity sector, um, you would need more electricity resources. Our current system is not ready for that. So we have to plan for more resources go forward. So that's why we're looking at a whole host of different options, of, of which one is maybe how would a, a combustion turbine fit into our um, sector. And I, I do want to underline as well that it, it certainly is laid out that even if we were to suggest some kind of combustion turbine, we have long said that we want to plan for and be ready for the ability to transition that to renewable fuels when they become available and viable. Well, I, I think a new turbine is the most effective and best route right now. A new new tuber, yeah. No, so I guess what um, we are looking at all options because it is appropriate, I think, expected of us to look at all options and not be focused on any one single option. So we are submitting, again, with our, our planners will, will let us know that it's about a dozen or 15 different types of solutions that we could use to produce electricity for customers in this province. Um, anybody who pays attention to the energy sector knows there's many different options available, pump storage, hydroelectric, wind, batteries, uh, turbines, combustion turbines. So we're looking at all kinds of options, and then we will, next year, say what is the first solution that we're going to need go forward. I guess 
my concern is for the reader who's going to read that um, Muskrat Falls, for example, is only producing 400 megawatts today, um, but it's capable of producing over 800. So why build 150? Do you know what I'm? You know, just put that into perspective, and, and why that is. Sure. Again, even even at its maximum available capacity for both Muskrat Falls plant and the Labrador Island Link, we will need more. Um, Muskrat Falls would have been envisioned a dozen years ago for a future that did not contemplate electrification. Again, every utility in the country is um, grappling with that. Um, so most utilities are saying they need to double and then sometimes triple um, the existing assets that they have. So this is not just us. That has to ready ourselves for um, electric, um, you know, people moving their homes to electric, people moving their cars to electric. Um, so that is, that is a big factor. So even with Muskrat's full availability, it is not enough for what's coming with regards to electricity demand. Ms. Williams, just quickly, um, are we on the hook with Amira for anything right now? I know that they have a holdback now. Uh, there was a, a UAB report, I think, this week for $4 million now holdback. Mm -hmm. So the power's flowing fine now, and they, they even said they're happy with it. But are you on the hook for any of that extra burden that they have? I think there's a $4 million holdback. It's been doubled from $2 million. No, we would not be, again, just to make sure I understand the question, right. um, that is, uh, I guess, the, the information with Amira and its regulator, that's between them. That doesn't affect us, but we're working really hard to deliver to Amera um, our contractual requirements, and as has been recently uh, communicated um, um, via Nova Scotia Power, as well as, um, uh, or I should say, Amera, as well as uh, you know, certainly in recent reporting, is that we are um, delivering and over-delivering in the recent months, and that's really due to the availability of the LIL. Are we catching up, or are we up to date with that? Yeah, we are absolutely catching up. We're making very good progress on that catch-up. So, do you, how much? What, financially or power-wise, what do we owe them? I don't have that number off the top of my head, but I can tell you we're making very good progress in, in the deliveries to uh, Nova Scotia and making up for what they had not received to date. Do you expect through this winter to be able to deliver all of the contractual requirements to Nova Scotia, per, per the contractual requirements to Nova Scotia? Absolutely. I expect us to be able to fully deliver to Nova Scotia this winter. And generally speaking, winter is approaching. Uh, how confident are you that the customers in Newfoundland and Labrador will get uh, good service from Newfoundland and Labrador Hydro? I'm very confident that the customers can rely on us for reliable service this winter. Is there any concern with Holyrood, given one of the units, um, mm -hmm. as I understand, it may not be functioning this mm -hmm. winter? Correct. So um, utility planners, we plan for having um, assets in reserve in addition to what we need at any point in time. So that could be a Holyrood unit out of service. It could be another unit down in Bay, Bay to Spear out of service. So it is, it is normal that you would have any units out of service at any time. Um, would I love 100% you know, availability? Sure, wouldn't we all? Um, but no, I feel very comfortable that we're ready to supply customers this winter, even with that condition at Holyrood. One last thing on the Lil. It's been one of the most public parts of this entire mm -hmm. last few years. Everybody's been hearing updates on the Lil. Uh, would you say we're out of the woods? What can you tell the public? Uh, you know, is right. that an issue now that you can put behind you? Sure. Um, utilities, we, we're paid to worry about electricity. Um, if we get too comfortable, then that's probably not a good approach, but I can tell you that we think about reliable service all the time. So when I think about our recent experience um, with the Labrador Island Link, with the software, with the investigations and the findings that we've had, the action that we've taken this year, I feel very comfortable with the Labrador Island Link. I think it's a good asset. I think it's going to get it to be an even better and even more reliable asset. I don't know if that definition is out of the woods, but I feel very comfortable with where we are with that, with that asset.
every asset, really big asset in particular, but any industry, when they put something new in service, it is totally normal to have issues that go wrong in the first few years. And, and we've been saying that for quite some time, that we wanted to make sure that we were planning for that and ready for that, whatever that looked like. And so we're not surprised that you would have issues because every utility would plan for that to occur. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, within a few years, I think we will be at that more stable, infrequent issues that you're going to have. But, you know, we do have 10,000 kilometers of line. We have issues every winter, every winter on some lines in, in the province. In five years' time, is something going to happen on that line? Sure. Is something going to happen on the lines out of Beta Spear? Absolutely. Um, we live in this northern climate, but it's not just northern climates these days that are causing issues on transmission lines. Um, forest fires are causing issues on transmission lines these days. So that's why you have redundancy, backup, and all those sorts of things. That's what we do as utility planners. I fundamentally believe that that is our role and goal is to provide reliable service, but very much in concert of what the impact is on rates. And that is Newfoundland and Labrador Hydro President and CEO Jennifer Williams providing an update today on the Labrador Island Link. Lots to take in on there. We'll follow up all of that on the weekend and with news next week. We're off to the news. Speaking of which, with Sarah Strickland, I'm Brian Callahan on News Talk. We'll be back after the news. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News Talk on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Um, back in the last half hour, I was... Um, Waxing poetically, uh, if you will, about Her Majesty's or His Majesty's Penitentiary, although they still call it Her Majesty's Penitentiary, uh, officially. Um, And uh, the issues down there are unending and uh, not a secret anymore. And earlier today, the uh, PC opposition justice critic had had another go at it. She uh, called a, a briefing to react to some of the comments that the justice minister has made recently just around um, no solid plans with if and when the new penitentiary will be built. So um, that's among that's one among a number of items that uh, was touched on today uh, when Helen Conway Ottenheimer met with reporters. And here is some of that now. Clearly, government has failed here to address the important issues that are, are occurring at the HMP. Now we're hearing that the issues and that the conditions are worsening down there, and yet we have no response from government as to what action they're going to take, what short-term measures, what long-term measures, and it's time for the Minister of Justice and Public Safety to speak out on this with respect to, first of all, the HMP, if it's going to be replaced. Yes and no, we need a decision. Yet, that was four years ago when it was announced. Four years ago, and we're still waiting. Is it going to be another five years? And yet, we're seeing that the conditions are worsening, they're escalating, and we need to have action by the government. Especially when we see, for example, courts that are uh, enhancing, giving enhanced credit for offenders at sentencing because of the inhumane conditions 
and perhaps what amounts to cruel and unusual punishment. First of all, short term, we hear about the mole that's down there, and we're hearing about rodents and rats and mice that are coming up and, um, you know, in fact, uh, biting inmates while they're sleeping. So obviously that has to be addressed. In any civilized society, we need to have uh, inmates and staff who have to work under these conditions uh, see improvements. So is there an option here for uh, the um, perhaps the infrastructure to be fixed and to be improved? I mean, if there isn't going to be a replacement for another four or five years of the, of the HMP, then what are we doing in the interim to ensure that this is a safe and healthy living and working environment for the people that are there. I want to ask you about that. So I guess the concern is if you're going to put millions of dollars into a facility that's only going to be replaced in a couple of years, is that a good investment? What well, we have to know, first of all, we have to have a decision from government. Yes or no, is the HMP going to be replaced? The public have a right to know. They have a right to that information. And we do not know that. We see that the, gov the minister has indicated that no one wants it more than him. He's, he stated that yesterday. Well, what's the holdup and why isn't this, this happening? And if it's not going to happen, then we need to understand what's going to be done in the interim to address these, these conditions uh, in, um, in the HMP. So what sort of options do you think they should be looking at to address those so when we look at short-term options, for example, if we're not going to try to fix the infrastructure in the uh, HMP, for example, to address the, the rodent infestation that is occurring, we need to have perhaps patchwork done down there or something of that nature. And that's, of course, for the experts to decide. But if that's not going to be, uh, that's an immediate uh, uh, way to address it, we also perhaps need to look at alternatives to incarceration, like utilizing uh, electronic surveillance, ankle bracelets, like looking at community service or adult diversion, looking at addressing the mental health court and enhancing the role of the mental health court. Because we do know that uh, a very, very high percentage of our inmates are, um, suffer from addiction and mental health issues. So these are some of the alternatives that we need to look at. The government has to start to think outside the box to act on this. We're looking, we're calling upon government to do anything. This has been going on for years now, and we need, we need to see action on this matter. So just to be clear, you support some sort of measures whereby people were given alternative measures, like normally their sentence might be incarceration, but because of the conditions, they find some sort of alternative well, we do know that these kinds of alternatives have been tested and tried and tested in other jurisdictions and uh, have an effect on reducing recidivism. Um, so, for example, uh, alternatives to incarceration like electronic monitoring, 
people can then, uh, sentenced offenders, can be in society, but yet they are monitored, so they are under supervision. Uh, we also know that um, adult diversion and alternative measures for offenders that are minor offenders, that are nonviolent offenders, surely this can be looked at and explored by government. But we need to see government act on this. Either they are unwilling or incapable of addressing these these problems. And it, this is very frustrating when we see this. has been years and still nothing is happening and we need to see um, some strong action and we need to see uh, the Minister of Justice take this uh, very seriously, which I'm, I'm concerned that he's not. Are you, are you having many families of, of people who are incarcerated reach out to you? And, and what are you hearing from that? And, you know, when you, yes, I have heard from um, families that um, they're frustrated because when it comes to visitation, for example, that's what, what we've heard recently. And that's another reason that we need to, to look at this. It's not only impacting the inmates. It's not only impacting the correctional staff. So not only correctional officers, but all of the staff that have the work there. But it's also now impacting the families of people that are uh, incarcerated who cannot go and have an in-person visit with uh, their loved ones. And so, I mean, again, that cannot be acceptable. I mean, we look at these inmates. We understand that they are serving their, their sentence. They are paying their debt to society. And that is something that is important to all of us. However, uh, we also have to remember that inmates, when they uh, are sentenced, they are returning back into our society. And so if they're not rehabilitated, then our society is certainly not uh, protected. So, again, we have to look at that as well. If this was any other, this is a government a public uh, building, a facility. And if this was happening, for example, in, in Confederation Building, uh, I'm sure that uh, there would be a very quick uh, action as to uh, addressing this problem. So we need to engage all parties that have um, a role to play. And uh, if this isn't done, this um, is very concerning to uh, all of our society. And, uh, of course, we know that uh, the, the homelessness issue is very serious right now. And uh, we only have to look a few steps from Confederation Building to see uh, the, another blatant example of government's failure to address very important issues like homelessness, cost of living, and our health care crisis. And that's a blatant example when we look outside Confederation Building doors here today. That is the PC opposition justice critic, uh, Helen Conway Ottenheimer, there, uh, once again, having to go at the HMP issue, uh, not going away anytime soon because the pen ain't going away anytime soon. We're going to run right to a break here on News Talk and come back and hear from the president of the FFAW, Greg Pretty, and the RNC and the RCMP with a few tips on how to do it all safe this weekend. I'm Brian Callahan on News Talk. We'll be right back. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Brian Callahan back on News Talk into the home stretch here for the long weekend. And um, the FFAW president, Greg Pretty, says that this crab season was the worst ever. 
period. Um, talked about the market collapse that forced harvesters to tie up for weeks to protest $2.20 a pound. Uh, didn't get much above that. They had some leeway after, but um, just uh, you know, to say it was the worst ever, it speaks volumes. And now they're trying to work out some kind of arrangement whereby all those people left high and dry, given the delays and it being a killer of a season, trying to find some extension to EI. Well, uh, earlier today, our own Linda Swain, right after fresh off her open line appearance, um, had a chat with Greg Pretty about um, what's happening and what might be happening. So uh, how do we mitigate against, uh, because there's no guarantees. We've seen the way uh, the world economy is going right now. So how do you mitigate against another uh, collapse in the crab um, market next year and ensure that harvesters and uh, plant workers get the income that they require? Good question. Right off the bat, you have an EI system. A Canadian EI system that's sympathetic to what's going on in people's lives. We don't have that now. The system actually works against people who are out of work. And I don't have to go down chapter and verse on that one, but I'll give you a couple of quick examples. New technologies, people who suffer job loss out of new technologies are out of business uh, with, the, with this particular system. The pandemic showed us that the EI system was pretty, pretty rigid and insensitive to people who who had to go to work or missed work because of the pandemic. And number three, the collapse of the crab fishery. So here's, here's, here's an EI system that's insensitive to a collapse of a major uh, income source for this province, or, or any province for that matter. And they just stand by and, uh, and they change the numbers. They make it tough around people. Well, here's, here's, here's the Canada I grew up in. There's sensitivities here. They help farmers, they help the auto industry, and they help people in trouble. Where do we get off the rails on this? But, you know, we got to start looking at how to do things right. Because when a, when a market collapses, your unemployment system that you pay into, that, that the companies pay into, has to be sensitive enough to deal with these catastrophes and to ensure that people are not hard done by because the Americans stopped buying crab. Now, there's where we are. It's as simple as that. You either have an unemployment system that's up to the speed for the 21st century, or you don't. And so that's a complete failure of the EI. That's, that's one thing. But the other thing that you need in place, you need to have both parties pulling on the same oars to get this fishery going. I called for a crab marketing board months ago in this province because it's needed. So there's a better way to do business on crab. We're not doing it. And not so much has changed. There's a lot of wealth to go around here, Linda, as you know, as anybody knows, anybody with a calculator knows, can do some napkin math and come up with the amount of wealth that's in the crab fishery. Biggest in the world. Most crab, between ourselves and the Gulf, 200 million pounds. And yet, we have people, the, the workers of that industry, are now struggling, potentially set up to struggle through this winter. Well, so, so we got to do, uh, uh, there's a better way to do this, and uh, the crab marketing board is one. And uh, so we're looking forward to, to getting to work uh, with ASP, with the, uh, with the provincial government, because there's a lot of things can change here to make things better for our workers, our harvesters, 
and most importantly, the, the communities they live in. So that's some of the work that has to occur before next crab season. But what about uh, the people who are affected here and now? Has there been any indication that the federal government is willing to look at this uh, EI change? Okay, um, let me just give you some background on that one. We've, uh, our staff uh, are totally engaged on, um, on this issue. To that point, we have spoken with the premier of this province on this issue. We've talked to Seamus O'Regan on it. We've talked to Goody Hutchings. We've talked to uh, Minister Boisino. We've talked to the feds. We uh, have an indication that, well, first of all, they're working very hard on it. We are told that almost on a daily basis, and we uh, hope that something can come through very quickly. As of this morning, one of our leadership uh, people in, in one of our major crab plants spoke with Terrence Rogers. Terrence Rogers gave him a very good indication that uh, the project is, is chugging along and we should hear something shortly. And uh, so we've, ha- we've paid a lot of attention to this. We've done a lot of work on it. And as I say, we're not saying, you know, if you can do this, we're telling him it has to be done. And it has to be done very quickly. So the players I mentioned, they're all focused on this. And uh, we're looking for a a very good outcome in in short order. That is the uh, president of the FFAW, Greg Pretty. A little bit of breaking news there, um, suggesting that uh, the wheels are moving and there may be some word soon on possible extension for EI benefits. Um, No pressure on Sharon Rogers there, but uh, as you heard uh, Greg Pretty mention that... um, a uh, senior plant worker in one of the plants, anyway, one of the larger plants was had a chat with Charles Rogers, and it seems to be something in the works. Uh, not full commitment, but uh, it seems to be a better sign than no word at all. So we'll keep you posted on that. And just getting into the um, very home stretch now of News Talk and the end of the week and the long Thanksgiving Day weekend ahead. We all know Monday comes, and sometimes, and unfortunately, all too often, uh, tragedy leads the newscast. Let's just hope that's not going to happen this weekend. If everybody just plays a little bit safer, a little bit more consideration for the person next to you, behind you, driving, walking, whatever you're doing. Try to be safe. And uh, just to reinforce that, James Cadigan of the RNC and Jolene Garland with the RCMP had a briefing today just to remind people and keep it all top of mind. So we're here today to talk about uh, traffic safety coming into another long weekend. And we've seen, uh, you know, the increase of traffic on the, on the roadways, certainly the highways uh, on long weekends. But I think what I'd really like to highlight here is the importance of partnerships and building relationships. Because what we have here is your, your police services across the province. And we want to make it clear that aggressive driving and impaired driving is not going to stand. And, and we want to work together with our communities to ensure that we remove it from our roads, certainly on long weekends where the volume is higher. You know, there's been, uh, you know, accidents and and incidences. Uh, And did you want to speak to, uh, you know, are people getting the message? What's going on here? We can't really say that people are getting the message. You know, this year, so far, uh, this year for the RCMP, we've responded to 21 fatal vehicle crashes that have resulted in the loss of 23 lives. Out of those, uh, we have nine that involve people that were not wearing a seatbelt, and we have eight where the driver was suspected to be impaired. 
If we look at off-road vehicle use, same thing applies. We have nine fatal crashes resulting in the loss of nine lives in, in that case. We have five people that were not wearing helmets and four people that were suspected to be impaired. How frustrating is it for you to see that this continues to be an issue, not, not even just month over month, but year over year now? You know, it's definitely frustrating. Uh, our officers are working diligently with the RCMP and the RNC, oftentimes together, uh, out there on the highway to enforce er you know, erratic, aggressive, excessive speeding and certainly impaired driving. Seatbelt usage, it's that simple. Put it on. You don't know when you'll need it. When you don't have it on, you do not have time to put it on. And if you get thrown from a vehicle, the chance of survival is very low. Well, what's the most concerning thing, uh, Constable Cadigan, for you in, in terms of these incidences? Yeah, so I think it's an opportunity for me to mention, that, you know, the responsibility we hold when we're grabbing that steering wheel and, and, and driving down the road. You know, you're driving a, a several ton often uh, vehicle that when moving at a high rate of speed is very, uh, you know, unpredictable can uh, cause significant damage and uh, you know can uh, risk, be a risk to your life so uh, it's important that uh, you know you understand that responsibility you know you're protecting your communities by driving safely and I'd like to also add the importance of reporting aggressive driving and and uh, you know impaired driving behaviors and it's important that we have the information that you have everyone carries a cell phone so let's share it give us the opportunity to respond appropriately uh, why don't you think uh, they're getting the message uh Garland. It certainly could be the scenario of it won't happen to me. It can't happen to me. Um, I know when we create news releases surrounding, you know, these tragic situations, fatalities and the like, when the proper equipment is not worn, we highlight that. And we do so not to be disrespectful for the loss of the loved one or, or their family members that are, you know, suffering that loss. We're doing it to highlight that this is happening. This is preventable. And we're trying to change that mentality. A lot of people, even with seatbelt use, seem to think you know in town I don't wear it in town but I wear it on the highway bad things happen in town and our stats show that as well well that's something I was going to ask Constable Cadigan about uh, you know these incidents are, are, are as, as uh, Corporal Garland said are happening in town as well yes yeah certainly so we've we've seen uh, you know initiatives that we've run together collaborated on whether it's checkpoints and other traffic initiatives and we're identifying these behaviors across the province so it's not just specific to rural or urban it's it's happening everywhere you know, we want the community to know that we'll, we will be present and uh, available to respond appropriately. Con Constable Cadigan, uh, can you speak specifically to, I guess, impaired driving for this weekend? I know that many people will be out with family. They might think, I've only had a couple of drinks. I'm okay. What would your message be in that scenario? I think the biggest thing to take from impaired driving is not the risk that you're putting to yourself, but the risk you're putting to others. You know, we've seen the impacts of impaired driving in our community. We don't need to talk about the numbers. We know that it's a safety risk and that it it essentially lies at risk. So uh, if you're going to, you know, drink or, or consume cannabis, you know, ensure that you are not going to be getting behind the wheel of any type of vehicle. And uh, in doing so, you are actually preserving life in your community. And did you want to conclude with, you know, this being Thanksgiving weekend, I mean, pretty special for families. Anybody, do you want to talk yeah, about that? Sure. So both the RCMP and the RNC are thankful this year. What we're thankful for, we're thankful for those who do choose to drive safe and sober. We're thankful for those who follow the rules of the road. We're thankful for those who wear their seatbelt, who drive within this posted speed limit, and who choose not to put others at unnecessary risk. That is Corporal Jolene Garland with the RCMP here in New 
Newfoundland and Labrador, and joined by, of course, RNC spokesperson James Cadigan. And they were meeting with reporters earlier this afternoon at RCMP headquarters, B Division, up in the White Hills. And so, yeah, it uh, seems like all pretty much common sense stuff um, uh, makes sense. If it makes sense to you and it seems common sense, it's pro- you're probably not who they're talking to. It's probably the other people who it goes right over the head and, uh, and end up in the news on Monday morning. Let's hope that's not the case. And let's hope innocent bystanders or others who uh, just happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. That doesn't happen either. Just be careful out there, folks. Uh, Claudette? Anything big planned for Thanksgiving weekend? You got a big turkey all looked after? And uh, I, I feel <laughs> that I was uh, strategizing, so I've decided that, yes, I will invite myself again to my parents as they'll cook a turkey, <laughs> and I will do the dishes. <laughs> it's a fair trade I do the dishes all the time. It's my thinking time, so I got no problem with that at oh, all. Can I, I come? Hate it. Sure, there's going to be a lot there. Oh, I want to. I want to bring up something that uh, somebody brought up in our show. They got ten seconds. Oh darn. Okay. So the best turkey tip I received today: buy a plastic turkey bag at one of the grocery stores. Ask for one, and then apparently it's really good. That's it. Okay. There's Claudette's uh, turkey advice. Thanksgiving advice. (laughs) Drive safely. Arrive alive, everyone. VOCM cares.